This is Thrive Perspectives, an ever-growing discussion about the issues and ideas that shape our lives, with your guide, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Well, Matt, uh, Connell, back in the studio, picking up our uh, very interesting, challenging, engaging, I hope anyway, conversation. Yeah, we're still, we're still we're here. We're still here. We're going to give it another go. Yeah. And see if we can make sense of all of this. Yeah, that's uh, it. Hopefully after about 30 episodes, we will have got <laughs> yeah. somewhere. <laughs> and hopefully our listeners will have got somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and then we can go and get something to eat. Uh, anyway, right. um, yeah, welcome back to Thrive Perspectives. We're continuing our journey as we consider... Uh, our worldview, and, and in particular, obviously, the Christian worldview. And we're picking up where we left off from last week, where we talked about the identity and the being of God, who, mm-hmm. who God is, and how, you know, we, we covered the topic of really how we try to sometimes humanize God too much, and, mm-hmm. and God is, is so much bigger than that. And, and so, Matt, we're sort of picking up that thread and continuing mm-hmm. how how important it is for us to understand that fully to really be able to get a, a clear understanding mm-hmm. of what... Um, what our faith is and mm. what our worldview uh, should be. So let's go. Yeah, let's go. I think it, it's, it, it will be useful to trace the sort of evolution of the way that we tend to think about God in the present. Uh, I would describe a very common sort of evangelical approach to God that I've encountered uh, as a pastor as something more akin to what's known as deism. Uh, deism is the view that, you know, God created this universe, the big machine, sort of wound it up like a clock and set it off. And it sort of runs on its own. And every now and again, uh, God sort of pops in to fix the thing up, make a few adjustments, yep. and then goes back to heaven, which is somewhere else. Okay, <laughs> That's a bit of a caricature. but I, But in effect, and practically, I feel from a lot of conversations that I've had as a pastor over many years, that that amounts to something like what a lot of Christians actually believe. And and I think even for myself, uh, as I have grown in my faith, I think I myself have uh, adopted that too much. It's been something of a, of a breakthrough down through the years, actually, to recover a real biblical, a robust biblical view of God. So, so this is where this. I'll just say right at the start. This is where this is so so important. Uh, this what we're talking about. What we talked about last episode, and and what we're going to talk about in this episode. Like it really makes a difference. It yeah. has made an enormous difference to me, uh, to my awareness of God. How you understand God in the first place uh, sets up your expectation, which then completely determines the way that uh, you know the way that I pray and relate to God. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's enormous, uh, the implications of this. So what I thought I'd do is actually uh, trace the sort of origins of that way of thinking, because we are, we are products of our culture, probably yep. more than we think. Uh, it, you know, even fairly highfalutin kind of esoteric ideas do tend to trickle down uh, ideas that are formulated at a sort of high intellectual level, they do, they actually do trickle down through culture eventually and, and shape the way that we all think. And so let's, let's go back, uh, say about to about 500 years ago. And, and this is a point that, um, the, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor makes, uh, in his book, A Secular Age, which I've mentioned before, which is a really important, uh, important book tracing the, the sort of origins, uh, but also identifying the nature of the way that we think, 
specifically the uh, characteristic style of modern skepticism, the skeptical mind, mm. you know. And he talks about the way that in which all people actually believed, say, 500 years ago, no one ever really thought to even doubt that there was a god. I mean, yeah. it was it was not it was not even up for d- discussion. It's just it was a it was a universal assumption. Now there can be problems with that too, and 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 we'll talk about that a, a little bit later. Just before you move yeah. on, to it, I would say probably it's reasonably true to say that pretty much outside the Western world, there's still. Uh, that's true. That's you know, very true. There's yeah. still very much a, yeah. a, a belief that there is a God. Yeah, that's right. So something something happened to change that, where that became an one option, really, and even a, perhaps a more difficult option. So, so to the point where that was, it was all, it was virtually impossible not to assume that 500 years ago. To a point where it seems like this great like quite a task in our time that belief in God involves all of this reasoning and, and, and you need to sort of justify it. You know, we, we feel now that the, the burden of proof lies upon us as believers. Mm. So there's quite a, you know, quite a monumental change from the one scenario to the other. Now, at the same time in that situation, 500 years ago, there was also a view of the universe. And, and, and I'm going to talk about how our view of the universe affected our view of God. And it can go both ways, actually. It's our view of God can affect our view of the universe as well. So um, the dominant view of the universe amongst the intelligentsia, five, going back 500 years ago, was an Aristotelian, uh, was drawn from Aristotle, which theologians were very f- were, were happy with, in a sense, because it was a view of the universe that saw God imminently at work in all things. You know, Aristotle believed that within all things there was this shaping force that caused the acorn to become the oak. An acorn will always become an oak, you know. And he described something uh, like actually what we would now see as DNA. It was inner shaping force. Uh, he, he referred to it as the language that he uses a formal cause. It's But it's this inner shaping force in all things. He saw all things as being ensouled in some ways. He even spoke of like a world soul. Now, that's Aristotle. But but Christian theologians recognize that 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 really accorded with what they understood to be this sense in which God is imminently involved in all things all the time. God is always creating and sustaining and upholding, right? It's a constant, pervasive activity of God, Mm. upholding all things. In fact... A theologian spoke about God being the fountain of being, and even in the the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the key confessions that came out of the Reformation, and that's sort of early 1600s. Even there, that you know, they describe God as the fountain of being. You know, mm. like at that level, it's the, the most fundamental level. Uh, all being is like branches out of the being of God, which is the pervasive foundation of all everything that exists, right? And so everything partakes or participates in the being of God in that sense. Like it's that level of pervasiveness. So, mm. Are you saying that was integrated in scientific thinking? <clears throat> is that what yeah. scientists are actually starting from that? Well, they, they didn't really have scientists the way that we think of, of, of scientists. Yeah. So, so I'll get to that uh, in a moment because the advent of modern science, for all of its strengths, and 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 when not here to bash modern science because no. uh, it, it it was a like a great development, but but that's going to change some things here. So up to this point, you've got this you know pervasive 
sense of God actively involved in actually upholding things because everything was seen to be developing towards a goal, right? Mm-hmm. And, and God is the guiding force in all of reality. So there was this sense, and this is what we talked about last week, that God is constantly involved. Like we, every moment, right, we are experiencing an unfolding miracle, essentially, mm-hmm. that we are experiencing God all the time. It's just so constant and pervasive it, we could easily not notice it, right? But, but in fact, it's a matter of the most imminent knowledge. It's the, the most immediate knowledge. Uh, we are experiencing this all the time. Our very consciousness is a participation in something essentially divine, right? So even our awareness, even our ability to think, albeit even to doubt, perhaps, that even is a participation, ironically, in something divine, right? Uh, so So... You know, just and and the universe around us, this unfolding miracles, this sense of of God imminently at work in all things, all the time, and everything participating in the being of God. What happened uh, then is that you 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 get the advent of modern science, and and what happens there is that th- there's this turn towards something more practical. To get back to what you were saying, then Connell, uh, science and philosophy were pretty much one and the same thing. And uh, scientists were initially, they would work from the outside in, the big picture inwards, right? They So they would look to create great met- metaphysical views and kind of work in from there, right? That was the Arist- Aristotelian approach. It was a theory of everything, and then we'll work for that, from there, right? Whereas science nowadays, you know, this is a point that's seen to be problematic about modern science, is that it's trying to do metaphysics mm-hmm. uh, now. Or almost from the inside yeah, out. Yeah, but more from the inside out, right? Yeah. We work with the with, with stuff and then we work and we, uh, by process of inductive reasoning, we just... Mm. We actually start with our own views ability of to reason. We assume yeah, that's our own right. ability to yeah. reason mm-hmm. can create it. It's the, it's the thought processes, yeah. the ability of a mind to process rational thoughts. Mm. They're just going to give us... Yeah. The, so everything has to emerge... From within us, yeah, or at that's least right. from within us. Well, well, yeah, within our perspective. So, yeah. and so it's it's the inside out. So, yeah. so you know, Aristotle was working from his big view, you know, his theory of everything, yeah. uh, which was quite a spiritual and organ- like an organic spiritual sort of view of of everything, and 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 certainly a sense of God at work uh, in in everything. And you know, after Aristotle, you know, theologians like the Stoics kind of worked with that idea, and they referred to the logos. Uh, as the sort of the mind of God mm-hmm. at work in everything all the time. And of course, John in John's gospel works with that idea. Mm-hmm. In the beginning was yeah. the word, uh, the Greek, the Greek word there is logos. It's a very loaded word by the mm-hmm. time John uses it in his gospel. It has a lot of phys- philosophical mm-hmm. background. And so, you know, right through the history of the church that this, this was the, the, the view. And then, you know, philosopher like the English philosopher uh, Francis Bacon is one of the key people who starts to bring about a change. You know, he's saying, "Look, we need to be practical." His big views of everything, and uh, we need to actually base now a science on experimentation mm. and the ability to actually do practical things, which is pretty reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> like, let's actually because there's so much systematic, yeah, so much yeah. you know metaphysical yeah. speculation. Yeah. You know, his point is, let's actually base it. You know, completely on observation, experimentation, uh, yeah. you know, falsification, and and just be really practical. Now, he, in a sense, invents the scientific method. Francis Bacon. In he there. was a Christian. He was as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You know, this is around sort of 
you know, 1600 uh, Francis Bacon. Now, he never intended – so his scientific method was just about being practical, right? It was never, ever meant to be a method by which we ascertain ultimate reality in any sense. It was just about being practical. Now, that method became very powerful and, and, you know, popularized in the famous quote from Francis Bacon is knowledge is power. So, and there's some problematic elements because he he felt like um, that subduing the earth meant control, having this uh, this knowledge that allowed us to control the elements. And as as a Christian, he interpreted that as us subduing the earth. Now, I mean, there's an element of there was an element of validity to that. And I should say too that even his science, because it didn't start with him. I mean, there's right, and this is what a lot of People, I think, miss because they think that science started in the Enlightenment period, you know, starting with Francis Bacon. Uh, actually, there's lots of great science being done, you know, Kepler and, and, and so forth, right? And oh, by little increments, mm. amazing science being done in, in the so-called Dark Ages. I mean, this that historical construct is mm. really problematic mm. because it it's- hadn't been formalized, yeah. I guess. It's essentially, as, as Rodney Stark points out, the, the historian Rodney Stark points out, it's essentially an anti-Christian construct, mm-hmm. the idea of the Dark Ages and the Enlightenment, you know, it's right. like all of that okay. superstitious Christian stuff, mm. you know, kept us in the Dark Ages. Yeah. Well, actually, science emerged out of the Dark Ages and as as Stark mentioned, in fact, as the philosopher uh, Alfred North Whitehead pointed out, in the midst of the heyday of sort of atheistic science, that actually science was enabled by the Christian worldview. Yeah. It would not have emerged if it were not for the Christian and, worldview. And you're right when you say about the Enlightenment, too, because mm. that's often painted as like it's like the switching on of mm. our brains to be able to think for ourselves and emerge from superstition. Yeah. And, and then we created science and realized, oh, science is the thing yeah, that's going to right. help explain all the silly superstition that we'd, right. we'd built up all through history. Yeah. And when you actually look at it, it's actually completely opposite of that. It emerged from yeah. it was the it was Christian yeah. thinking that actually led yeah. and really ultimate philosophically enabled science to even even progress. So yeah, that's right. The, the criticism is often leveled against Christians is that it's anti science. Yeah, um, you know it couldn't be further from no, the, no, the truth. Right. Couldn't be further from the truth. And and I and. Rodney Stark's argument in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, now it's written from a non-Christian perspective. Mm-hmm. I find that all the more value because it's like yeah. he's recognizing the he's recognizing yeah. these, this stuff mm-hmm. as a as, as someone who's not necessarily Christian. But so so Francis Francis Bacon in a sense you know invents this scientific method uh, with, with which to sort of exercise sort of practical con- control of the elements and be and and this is actually you know this becomes enormously fruitful. And uh, and sort of spawns this scientific revolution, uh, you know, from the 1600s on, and then sort of by the 1700s, let, let's jump forward to Newton, to Isaac Newton. So, one of the the results of his work is that th- this is, and and this is massive, right? Because what what Newton does essentially is change the way that people think about the universe, right? So this kind of starts with the scientific revolution, but Isaac Newton sort of calculates the, the the sort of causal relationship of everything to everything else, right? The laws and, of motion. Yeah, the laws of motion mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. So by this stage, you've got this separation. This actually begins, this is why I had to think about how much detail, because this kind of begins actually with Descartes, who sort of separates the world into mind and matter. So that separation of mind and matter sort of begins 
uh, really with uh, with Descartes. Whereas whereas previously mind was in matter in the Aristotelian view. Mind right. is at work. This is the idea of the logos. Mm-hmm. Mind is at work in everything. Right. Yep. Now the interesting thing is, in the last sort of twenty or so years, we've been quickly moving back to that idea. Mm. In fact, actually, probably uh, probably you know more than twenty years. Certainly with the the quantum quantum revolution. You know, quantum physics looks very much like there's mind at work. There is actually mind at work. Mm, in, yeah. I mean, that's kind of complicated. But, but yeah, in the last 20 years, there's been the swing back to that Aristotelian view of mind at work in matter as a shaping force, which is, which is a really interesting sort of development that's actually summed up. There's a, um, there's a great lecture on YouTube. Uh, well, there was a book put out about 10 years ago called uh, by Oxford University Press called The Waning of Materialism. I think I've mentioned this before. Mm. Mm. Uh, and it's sort of, it's major, it's, it's uh, philosophers who, who are basically pointing out this, the materialist, that it's just stuff, you know, that mindless matter actually is enormously problematic. And there's a, there's a lecture actually on, on YouTube, which is really interesting of that title, The Waning of Materialism. Yeah. Which is worth. So we'll make we'll reference that at yeah, the end of yeah, the, good. End of the yeah. podcast. That that, mm-hmm. that just traces. So that's a very interesting development in in our time. That that swing back to that mm-hmm. view. But it, essentially, what you get from Descartes is this this sharp separation. Matter is just stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's characterized by just simply extension, right? So mm-hmm. it's mathematical, right? You can, and then mind is sort of separate to that. So so Newton then sort of works with this idea of matter is just pure extension. It's just stuff, right? And mm-hmm. and it's this brute stuff that essentially everything that that has these causal connections, you know, it's like, uh, you know, like the planets are just these balls in empty space. Yeah. You know, we, it's, everything is made up of like atoms in empty space, essentially. It's all, it's all predictable, controllable, yeah, measurable. It's, just, it's brute stuff. There's, there's no... Yeah. Essentially you know, the law of action and reaction, basically. It's it, like you do this and that will happen. Exactly. Just does that and that will happen. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the thing is, it, it really worked because he was able to calculate and, and, and it was an in, enormously fruitful, the work mm. that he did. I should say he was a very strong Christian. He yeah. wrote more in theology than he did in science, right. okay. uh, Isaac Newton. Mm. But it's interesting that the result that his work, though, had, because essentially what he ended up with is the universe uh, starts to look like a big machine, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Now... You know, you're in the very early stages of industrialization, and 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 the, you know, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, <clears throat> you know, and so, you know, as as we move on, particularly into the 19th century, the 1800s, you know, in in the the era of big machines, the the universe, as a result of this these this Newtonian physics, is construed as this big machine. You know, it's this it's like a clock, and and so for Newton, he found this machine to be quite awesome, you know, that there's so much pattern and it's all, it all looks like it's been constructed like a, and, and the illustration that was used was like a, a watch, you know, cause mm. at this stage watches were probably the most, one of the most, more complex mechanisms. Yep. And so what happens is God is seen and quite explicitly described as the watchmaker in a mm. sense. Right. So he comes winds it up. Everybody. Yeah, he creates this big machine, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's you know, and you know, one of the arguments that for the existence of God, because then uh, I mean, I'm jumping forward a bit. 
from the early apologists, um, Paley, it's the watchmaker argument. You know, if you're walking through the desert, you see a, a watch. Yeah, a blind watch. You, you, you assume that someone's been there, that a person's been there, because mm-hmm. that a, a watch with all its complexity mm-hmm. can't just spring out of nowhere, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that argument is very familiar to us in our time, mm-hmm. okay? But I want to point out there's something very problematic about that, and I'll get to that in a moment. Because it also assumes something about God that's not quite accurate, okay? (laughs) Because there's something, it is a very compelling argument, right? It's like, well, you see a watch Mm -hmm. and and someone must have made that. It can't have just sprung out of nowhere. It's got the characteristics of having been made, of having a designer. Yeah, that's right. And and of course, course, the more science progresses and the more we get to, you know, like cells and, and, you know, what we can perceive through microscopes and, you know, we see this incredible complexity, mm-hmm. biological compl- complexity uh, around us. And so, man, this machine looks, it's this amazing machine. And But see, this is the problem uh, is that the universe is this big machine. And so what you get is this view of God, uh, that God creates the machine and you get this notion with this of the natural world right god creates this natural machine so so you get the mm-hmm. you get the beginning of the distinction between the natural and the supernatural you didn't have that before not in that yeah. not in that sense you you have something close to it in uh, in thomas aquinas in the in the 1300s sort of he spoke about nature and grace but that's a slightly different so right, so are you uh, saying notion? that prior to this time probably it was more considered superstition than supernatural is that because it would have been Earlier, well, there was earlier people who believed all these sort of superstitious things that couldn't be explained. Well, it, wasn't so. even, it wasn't even the wasn't even the superstitious. I think superstitious things were probably an outworking of just a fundamental uh, belief that there was something. A kind of everything imma- is spiritual. Imma- yeah. Everything is so, immaterial. Yeah, and that's right. Yes, there were lots mm. of superstitious beliefs, and it's partly because of that that and and so this is a this is the point that Charles Taylor makes in sort of tracing how everything became disenchanted is the is the word that he uses after the sociologist Max Weber. Uh, he speaks of the disenchantment of the world uh, because m- the, this sociologist Max Weber talks about our time is characterized by a general disenchantment of the world. Like mm. everything is just stuff. There's nothing spiritual going on. Mm. It's all just ma- a big machine, right? Yeah. And and Charles Taylor sort of sees that. I mean, he, he act- it's interesting because he actually thinks that Protestantism – He's a Catholic, uh, Charles Taylor, a Catholic philosopher. And I think there's an element of truth to this, that Protestantism contributed to that general disenchantment of the world. Because remember, what the Protestants wanted to do is get rid of a lot of that superstition. It just went Mm -hmm. too far. Like everything was, you know, like the cult of relics, for example. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like everything had these mystical powers Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they created all these sacred spaces and sacred rituals and, and, you know, you had you know, the seven sacraments rather than just the two biblical ones. And it, it just got out of hand. It, mm-hmm. it, it was superstition that got out of hand. So so that's kind of going on as well. And that's one of the streams that perhaps uh, that contributes. To it. Now, I, I think that was legitimate on the part of Protestants is wanting to curb that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the thing, what, what's happening, though, with the scientific revolution and, and with this Newtonian view of the universe is that you get almost a pendulum swing to the opposite extreme, right? Yeah. Whereas previously, yes, everything is spiritual, mm-hmm. but now nothing is really. Mm-hmm. Now the universe is just this machine and God sort of made the machine like a watch. And 
then sort of withdraws and lets the machine run on its own. So you get this idea of the natural world, you know. Mm-hmm. And so th- this is – we're actually very affected by this because we look at the natural world and we do actually see it as running on its own, right? Mm-hmm. It just runs on its own. Yeah. Like a machine that doesn't ne- necessarily require God. Mm. But what we do then is that we – so we see – and so this is our idea of the natural, right? Even our bodies, you know, they just run – they just run themselves, right? Now, now we've never quite been able to explain what life, mm-hmm. actually the very thing that runs it, what life is. But see, this is one of the problems is we see everything as running on its own, but there are certain things that we can't explain about uh, about this, right? You know, so maybe how it started or how it went from this stage to that stage, you know, how we went from chemicals the sort of the chemical soup to suddenly conscious life springing mm-hmm. forth you know and so so what we do is that we we identify gaps of knowledge uh, in those areas yep. and with this sort of deistic view and this is what deism is is this view that god sort of creates the machine and then is withdraws and lets it run on its own well we say oh well so god made it so that's so so we have an explanation for how how the machine came about but then also god sort of jumps in at a points right mm-hmm. and and so god kind of uh, caused life to come out of this chemical soup perhaps or you know that 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 god is the explanation for that so that, that, that but then he withdraws again and lets it run yeah so that its, own. it's kind of when i'm you know listening to you talking i'm trying to work out where are you Going with saying it's not like a machine because I'm thinking myself. You know, I look at the world and look at everything yeah. natural, and I think I've always thought of it. It is like a machine that God does control and energize, and and so on. Well, puts yeah. that in. And I was trying to work out, yeah, what well, you're going to say. It is or it isn't. But it, I think the point that you're trying to make <laughs> is what we've actually done is partition it. It's like it's the natural world, yeah, or point. it's the supernatural world. And it, it's and we're always trying to find the the holes the in it. Where where's that interface? Mm. Where does the supernatural and the natural world begin? And I think what you're saying is that that boundary doesn't, doesn't actually exist. exist. Yeah. It, it permeate the world is like a God has built a machine in a way, but it's it permeates. <clears throat> There isn't a boundary. There's not the machine and then a God that stands at a distance winding it up and into, injecting into that. It's actually – there isn't that separation. Mm, that's yeah, yep. yeah, that's good. Although from the time of pr- – pretty much from you know, the beginning of the 20th century, from the point of the Einsteinian revolution and into quantum physics and p- particularly quantum field theory, that – the idea of the the universe as a machine has been completely blown out of the water. Uh, so this change hasn't b- because we've held on to the idea of the machine. Science has moved on from that. Uh, it's actually something way weirder than that, and it's something. And I'm not going to attempt because I'm I'm not uh, I'm, I'm not a scientist, but I have I have found this change fascinating because. You know, for example, if you go to the the Royal Institution, um, which Sorry. is, I think, a Cambridge yeah. uh, series of public lectures that's been going for, you know, 200 years or something, yeah. they have these public lectures where leading scientists explain to a general public, you know, sort of where, what's going on in science. And there's a, there's a lecture on quantum mm-hmm. field theory. Yeah. And it's really worth a look. So he moves from this idea that, you know, just objects in space, objects in empty space, sort of having this causal relationship and and functioning like a machine. He says, no, 
to, to summarize very crudely, he says, no, everything is made up of quantum fields. There isn't space between you and me. Everything mm-hmm. is quantum fields. And matter is essentially something like the sort of resonance or, or pockets of energy, you know, because matter is condensed energy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is me doing basic science. Yeah. I'm moving. I'm going to move right outside of my uh, my proficiency here. But you know, essentially, it looks. Uh, and this is this is a point that um, Freeman Dyson, the Christian uh, leading physicist, is also a Christian, that he makes is that essentially matter functions more like bits of information. And um, and there's a Jewish um, physicist, um, Gerald Schroeder, who has written a book called The Hidden Mind of God, I think it's called. And he, he points out that actually matter at the quantum level behaves more like mind. Yeah. And you can have a look at that. And, and yep. uh, that, that's really, it's mm-hmm. really interesting, uh, interesting stuff. Mm. So, so there's this. So the that separation between mind and matter now is being been seriously challenged. Yeah, I'll I'll put the links, listeners. Yeah. I'll put the links to these things because I've watched some of those videos too, and they are amazing. Mm-hmm. But if you even think about psychology, for instance, that's the suggestion that mind can control or there yeah, is mind yeah. and matter. You know, you know, there's already been a sense of merging those two things where where the way we think can actually affect. Yeah. Our bodies and our behaviours and our actions and all those sorts of things. So it's not like it's just been discovered. This whole, as you said before, there's a transition back to mind in matter. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, yeah, over a period of time. Yeah. And I don't want to lose the no, strand sorry. of the yep. point uh, that, that I'm making here because because uh, what happens uh, with that mechanistic view of the universe is that we get this god, we get this deistic god that sort of stands outside of the stuff, right? So we're just stuff. Everything around us is just stuff. It's like natural, the natural world. And you get this idea of an interventionist God, the mm. God that that it's, sits outside it, but every now and again ducks in and makes changes. It's, that's the, that to me is the, the key thing, yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's the God who stands outside of it. I still think it is like a machine, even taking into account that quantum field theory, like ultimately matter and all the bits, the building blocks that make it are all going to be grounded in some other kind of concept that's outside of anything that we could yeah. – comp- but I think it's, it's that it's all like in some way in the mind of God, like yeah. it's sustained in God's exi- – it's not yeah. that God comes in and winds it up. He's, he's, he's constantly standing behind. It's, it's emerging in some way from out of God himself. Yeah. You know? But it's – there's some to me. It's still, it's still the machinery. Like if I get fertilize an egg, I get a new baby, for example. And it's like, it just seems to be the biology that you do that. I mean, it would have been a time you think you fertilize an egg and a baby's born. That's a miracle. That was God going. Oh, okay, right. We've just fertilized the egg. I'm going to now start creating a baby yeah, in or- the in the womb. But it's it's all it's the machinery to do that. I still think God's created yeah, although, that. Yeah, although uh, you're reading a sort of a human, a human perspective onto that yeah. as well, because because we create machines, right? So yeah. so it's the only re- way that we yeah. have to really exactly. understand yeah, right. what's going on. So so you look at at what happens in a cell, you know, and there are those amazing videos about you know RNA and DNA and all what actually happened, mm. like the reproduce. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible, like what happens. Uh, this this is. You know, the intelligent design, uh, advocates of intelligent design have sort of highlighted this and created these amazing videos 
to point to what they refer to as irreducible complexity. Mm-hmm. There is a cell replicating, and they use also they use a mechanistic. They talk about a cell replicating machine that had has to have all the parts in place at once in order to even begin. So in in order for life cells to even begin to exist, you need all these things in in place at the same time. It's the it's it's the argument from irreducible complexity. So it's valid, right? But the the thing that I would point out, the, the problematic element of pointing to that as a sort of a argument for the existence of God, because their thing is, well, how did all these elements come together, right? Mm-hmm. How did the bits of the machine get together? Well, they say, well, that is evidence for, for God. Now, I agree. Okay, I agree. Mm-hmm. What I have a problem with, I think, though, is the perpetuation of this mechanistic sort of view, because I still think it's us reading a human perspective onto reality, and it still perpetuates this idea. So we can't explain how this machine was created. So so we still keep coming back to this idea, yes, God must have put the bits together and then left it to function on its own. We're reducing God to the machine as if there is nothing outside of the machine. So we look for God like in the gaps. In the well, machine yeah, itself. It's, I mean, the, the problem that I'm pointing to is this idea that God put the bits together and then it's sort of – that is true. So I'm not saying it's not true. So yep. the intelligent design, uh, I'm not saying it's, it's, not, it's not a valid point. It, is, it mm-hmm. is a valid point. But it seems to perpetuate this idea that God puts the bits together, the machine runs, and then God just lets it sort run. Sort of sit right? and forget. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, then, and then by extension, when it doesn't work, right, when there's sickness or, or – it's almost like then, then we need to get – you know, like God needs to sort of come in from the outside in some sense and fix – tinker with the machine. Mm. And, 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 I'm, and again, not denying that God comes and brings healing and, and also not – not to deny that there are genuine problems with, you know, w- with the world, that there's an element of, in a sense, an element of chaos that we as human beings are brought into the world that causes sickness. And that's another story yeah. that just, we'll tell. Just to be a little bit, you know, an alternate advocate here for a yeah, second yeah. here, doesn't the biblical narrative kind of even enfor- reinforce that a little bit? You know, the flood, you know, the world's gone, I'm going to just have to destroy it and start again. Jesus coming into the world, you know, mm. the sense of intervention, doesn't that kind of, in a sense, reinforce our thinking that that's what God does? Well, you guys can't help yourself, so I'm going to come and sort this out. Uh, mm. You know, that I can understand why even some Christians would see that, Yeah, you know. I, I guess what I'm saying is that that, in a sense, that does happen. So God interacts in that sense, relationally with with the world, what is problematic is the idea that God is somehow so, somehow on on the outside. I think because c- what what is being described in the Bible is a kind of relational separation. Really, it's you know that that the world has become this realm of uh, sort of like an independent. You know, we've broken the world off. In a relational sense, independent, and, and we've introduced this this corruption into the world, into the what God has made. But still, there's still this sense in Scripture that that God, as sovereign Creator, is constantly at work in all things, all the time. But part of God's commitment is to let the decisions of human beings pertain. 
because he's empowered us. And so, I mean, this is, we're getting yeah. onto another subject that we'll talk about. And that's the nature of evil and suffering mm-hmm. and, and the problems in the world. That's a, that's, let's, let's talk about that soon because that's a very important yep. qualifier to mm-hmm. all of this, right? Because essentially God was committed because suddenly we become, as those who share in the, in the sovereignty, well, in, we, we are given authority. And so, uh, in a sense, our will becomes determinative to some extent on the world, right? So, so, uh, so that adds a complexity to the picture, mm-hmm. right? But that doesn't mean that that God is no longer involved in the world, or and and so the idea of of God sort of intervening in situations is it's still valid. The problem there is still this idea that the world is this machine that sort of functions on its own. And I'm not saying, you know, that God is there, you know, turning a, a crank, you know, constantly in all the cells. Like, let's not. Mm. It's it's actually the fact that all reality in the most fundamental sense participates in the being of God. Life itself is a divine attribute. It's mm-hmm. So, what is it that makes us alive and makes it's it's actually the life of God mm. at work in all things. Yeah. Um, God is life. Okay. So... And as I said, even our consciousness and these sort of so so there is a sense in which uh, of of the imminence of God. Now, it's it's important that we don't limit God's imminence just to the physical world. That's pantheism that mm-hmm. says mm. the world is God. Mm-hmm. Right now, we would affirm the fact that God is imminently at work in all things all the time. But God is also greater than the than the universe as well. Okay, so another way of saying that is God is holy. Right, yeah. He's also distinct. He's separate in some sense as well uh, from from the world. And so, so yes, there is that separate, there, there is that sense in which God is distinct from the world. Mm. So that's, a, that's an important point. Uh, and, and so God does relate to the world as one who is separate from it. So it's not just like when we're not, uh, this is not just the idea, for example, the Hindu idea of Brahman yes. is the idea that Everything is God. That's what makes God. Yeah, yeah that everything is God. Mm-hmm. That's we're not that we're yes. not saying that. So yeah. we we would advocate a view that says God is separate to the world, but the world itself, the very being of the world, and and the the life force in all living things, is actually a participation in a divine power, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. So it's a constant participation in divine power that empowers everything, right, mm-hmm. from within. Yeah. I mean, the, our, the language is 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 in, insufficient in a sense, but it's, I'm trying to I'm trying to avoid this idea that the universe is just this thing that operates apart from God, and God is somehow yeah. sort of separate I th- I th- in that yeah. sense. I think the important thing, though, is is in that is actually trying to break down that picture or where we've imposed in our own understanding of the machine as being something that is distinct. From God, as opposed, you know, natural, and the supernatural's over here, and it, it's it's recognizing there is a problem with that that model because it's it seeps into. I think it seeps into everything, like yeah. in terms of how we approach God, you know, in prayer, um, how how we engage with Him, and what we how we actually just exist mm. within God Himself. Because yeah. if we have that separation there, then we maybe we see prayer as us coming to to God and there's like an interface there to God and then we go back to our normal life again 
or there's some there's some sort of distinct yeah. separation let's, let's, between that's right. things. And mm. I, I just I think the biggest thing, and this is what comes back to this whole thing we talked about with worldviews mm. and you know axes and multiple dimensions and things like that, is I think it's tr- it's changed how I view my own prayer life in terms of how I interface with God. And I actually me too. It makes yeah. me feel like he's ever present. Mm. And when right. and my prayer life, you know, like I think when I'd sit down to pray before, I think I'd come with my shopping list. Mm. This is what I need God to do for me, or this is what I want from Him. Where now I think, in terms of prayer, it's not so much doing that, but it's just setting aside time to dial back everything, everything out, all the other things in mm. life, mm. so that I can hear God and just be in him mm. more rather than coming and saying, right, here's the things I need to bring to you today. It's just allowing yourself to kind of go, it's just me and God. Mm. And it's dialing it all back. But recognizing that he's always there all through the day and that everything that happens to me, all the worries, anxieties, decisions I've got to make is constantly letting go of them and giving them over to God because it, he's always somehow yeah. or other. Yeah. I need to exist yeah. with him all day, Yeah, not just in the the small window of time that I give him yeah. when I pray. I, I, need to li- I need to bring him into my life, integrate him into everything. Mm. So prayer is essentially a response to the fact that God is already at work. Yeah. In, and, and in a sense, in our humanness, we can work against the flow of God in all things. I mean, you know, God is at work in, in, in all things, and, and he is pushing things in a certain direction according to his will. Now, the problem is that human beings have gone against that flow, and that's where the chaotic elements in, in everything, and we'll talk more mm. about that in a future episode. Mm. So prayer is actually about us yielding to that flow of God. It's because remember, prayer, the way that God wants us to pray is praying in the spirit, right? It's this sense of, of flowing with the desire of God. So our desires begin to flow with God's desires. And we begin, so prayer essentially is an act of agreement with God, of appealing and, and desiring the things and seeking the things that God wants as well. So yeah, it's it's a response to the constant movement of God uh, in all things. I I I really liked what you said then because I would see it. I, I hear what you're saying, mm. but for me, it's more about me actually, as you say, uh, recognizing God's always at work around me, in me, through me. But there are times where, because of my humanness and the and the the choice that God, the choices that God gives me, mm. is it's actually a time where I come and put down what I think I want to do and go, okay, this is what I think I want to do. Yeah. But God, I'm open to, I, I realize you, you've got a way better plan. And, and it's, yeah. it's actually a way for me. My prayer life is much more about me intentionally putting down the things because we can get on this trajectory and, yeah. this, and head off. And so both of those things are work together yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's why I think what you're saying there about the machine and the way that we, I think that does flow into how we, view God because we separate mm. the two. It leads you down the path of thinking that God is actually remote or disconnected. Yeah. Even in I, I think yeah, if you that's were a ex- better that's a better term actually. Remote and disconnected is a better than better than separate because because mm. we do think God is separable you know that is separate in some sense to to the you know he's he, he's he's not the universe itself. Yeah. Mm. He's imminent in it but uh but yeah it's he he's not 
uh, what are the terms remote, he's, he's not remote, remote and disconnected yeah, he's it's not almost remote like, and disconnected it's almost right. like prayer is like inviting him back into it again yeah, and yeah, it's exactly. like there's that big disconnect well that, yeah there's actually some validity to that yeah, actually because because yeah. as because god has given us human beings charge of the world in a sense mm-hmm. and so if we want things to change, God's not going to undercut the authority that he has given no. us. So we need to ask God. This is why prayer is important because it's, it's an act of authority. It's an act of inviting God to come and bring his order where we have created disorder. Yeah. But I think we end up creating God as another component, yeah, quadrant that's of our right. life. That yeah, we that's have right. to go and visit every now and again. Yeah. Is, is that remoteness and disconnectedness, mm. which is there, I think, ties into exactly if you go right back to where you're starting aristotle that view of the world yeah that was the starting point that that there is that big kind of like spiritual that like the starting point for everything where now what we've done is we've ended up in a place where we separate that out Mm. and go that's that's the supernatural that's the natural and then that's created a, a view of god that god's over here and we're over here and it shapes mm. our whole understanding yeah. of of every of even how we understand God. And I think what we're wanting to get to is reshaping our thinking and saying, well, actually, God, even the things that look like machines and and are predictable and controllable by us, there's something much 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 deeper yeah, going right. on that ultimately even science is ha- is going to have to grapple. Well, with. It, it, science is grappling yeah, with that actually right. at, at the moment. And 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 I should say too. This didn't really start with Aristotle. Aristotle, of course, is just articulating what it's mm. interesting to note was was intuited quite generally. Across. I mean, this is the interesting thing about Hinduism. In Hinduism, there is this intuition of this divine element at work in all things. Now, they're 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 viewing that in this sort of bottom up sense. You know, they're you know the assumption in the Hindu Upanishads is that is that well, everything then is God. Now that's just because of a limited perspective. I kind of get how they, yeah. how they sort of got there, but it's. I think it's the perspective is too limited. But certainly in all people groups, in some sense, there 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 was always some sense that there is a divine element, some kind of divine element, however it was described, in all different cultures and people groups. There was this sense, this intuition of this divine element at work. It's certainly a biblical. Uh, that's that's certainly validated in a biblical sense. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. There is the the word of God. The logos resonates mm-hmm. in 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 everything. I mean, it's interesting, you know, in in quantum field theory, that idea of of matter as being this sort of resonating, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the, the, the quantum fields resonating at a certain at certain frequencies, mm-hmm. and so the idea of the word. It's really interesting when you mm-hmm. think of that in terms of the word of God, the word, the logos, mm-hmm. and you know, God creating things through speaking. Mm-hmm. And oh man, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. <laughs> that's another <laughs> rabbit hole. It's great, you know, but yeah. So so in a sense, I. I Point to Aristotle because he just articulated that in the most s- systematic yeah. way, yeah. and and then Christian theologians said, well, that's probably in, in terms of a sort of what they then understood as a scientific way of describing that. They said, well, that's that's actually a pretty good way of of validating what what we've always thought was was the case, mm-hmm. even though there were lots of other Arab parts of Aristotelian thought that they didn't buy into. But that's another question. So one of the things that uh, I think is worth pointing out too is that 
the advent of atheism also comes in response to this god of the, this this mechanistic view of things, right? Because what the way that this cut comes about, and and this was really the idea behind. Uh, Nietzsche's idea of the death of God, of famously Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, declared at one point, God is dead, right? And wh- what did he mean by that? Well, he meant that we can now, science has closed all the gaps, at least he, he thought. Particularly because, mm-hmm. remember, I mean, Nietzsche is doing uh, philosophy after Darwin. So so he felt like, and this is, is actually, Daniel Dennett makes this, makes this, he's an atheistic philosopher, he makes this point in his book, Darwin's Dangerous Idea is that this now explains everything. We actually don't need God. This is even the foundation of, of the new atheism. This is their argument um, in Dawkins. that He's got a chapter entitled, Why God Almost Certainly Does Not Exist. And, and basically his argument is, we've closed all the gaps. Mm-hmm. We've got an explanation for everything that is simpler than God. Mm-hmm. And of course, the assumption, his assumption is the simplest explanation is always the best, Occam's razor. Mm-hmm. Now, there's no reason to accept Occam's razor, of course. Yeah. The simplest explanation may not always be the right one. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Occam's razor says the simplest explanation is to be considered the best mm-hmm. one. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't mean yeah, it's the right one, you know. Um, anyway. But Dawkins has grossly overstated the power of what he thinks yeah, science yeah, yeah. has done. I mean... It, as soon as you go anywhere out on the the periphery, in terms of evolution, even for evolution to get started, yeah. science. As soon as you you hit a boundary, that science starts to 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 drop off. Yeah. In terms of you know where did life start? How did yeah. how did a, a caused universe yeah. ever get started in the first place? In consciousness, all these things represent to me different sort of boundaries of science that we're going to keep Trying budding push. up against. Yeah, that's, that's against. true. Yeah. And as soon as you go beyond that, whatever you think is a simple explanation is just going to get really, really complicated. Yeah. But they, but the, the point is that they make is that they think that we'll solve that one day. You know, we'll, we'll solve all the problems one day. The argument there is that we have a principle of an explanation that can mm-hmm. be applied to everything. It's just that we haven't got to everything yet. Now, the problem, again, with that is that that is a and, – and making that the basis for an argument. Now, I think that's fundamentally wrong. I think mm-hmm. that's fundamentally wrong. And actually, Marcelo Gleiser has, uh, uh, has written a book – again, not non-Christian author uh, – wrote a book called The Island of Knowledge. And he actually points out over and against that, that sort of view, uh, what's known as a scientific view, that the scientific method can – you know, that eventually will lead to us being able to understand everything. Well, he says, no, that there are actually fundamental mysteries that that science will never be able to explain. And the way that he he illustrates this is like uh, an island in an ocean of mystery. So think of the, the ocean is mystery. The island is what we know. Now he says the shores of the island is is our not is is our expanding knowledge. As the island of knowledge grows, so the shore is our mm. ignorance. Is mm. where mm. is where our knowledge encounters the mystery. Okay, mm-hmm. the shores of the island. Right. Now he says as our knowledge grows, like think of an island that grows. Yeah. Yeah. So also does the our ignorance, the ban- yeah, right? The- because the the, the shoreline also expands, and so with the expansion of knowledge also comes the expansion of a fundamental mystery mm. uh, behind it. Now, I think that's a really good point. So that's the well, corrective. The more, the more you know, 
the more you realise you don't know. That's right. So that's the corrective yeah. to that to that point, and and I think it's a compelling one actually. However, what Nietzsche essentially was saying when he declared the death of God is that well now we can explain at least he thinks we've got a principle of next explanation for how all this came about. Now the gap's closed and God's disappeared. So he thinks that God disappeared. So it's it's treating God as an explanation in a sense. Mm-hmm. God is the is the one that made it, or the one that fixes it, or the one that you know uh, provides the closes the gap here or the gap there. And because he thinks now we've closed the gaps, therefore there's no need for God. This is exactly the mm-hmm. argument you know that Dawkins, for example, uses. The problem with that is that. We didn't believe in God in the first place because we needed an explanation for the universe. That's not it's it's essentially based on a deistic God. So the God that that as I, you know, read, you know, sort of labored through what through the works of some of these atheistic thinkers, mm. I thought the God that they're disproving isn't the God that I believe in. It's that separated out, remote God the 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 machinist in mm, a sense the mm. the god that creates the machine and then yeah. says well we you know we don't need that because we you know we can have other explanations but that was that's that is not the no. god that we believe in mm. anyway so i think that deistic view is so problematic because essentially it led that's what created atheism deism mm-hmm. created atheism uh, because True biblical theism isn't even up for that kind of it's yeah. you, you know because essentially it's saying that God is the very principle of life at work in all things. All being participates in God by virtue of even having being mm-hmm. right because God is the fountain of being. Okay? Mm. So at that level, even skepticism is essentially still exercising the very being and the very consciousness that actually is already a participation in God. So so, so atheism, in a sense, in the sense that it has existed, actually can only exist with reference to the deistic God. So so, so that's the one thing. And then the other thing is this, and, and, and I think this is getting back to the point that you were making before, Connor, and, and this is, I think, this is where this becomes really practical for us and how we pray and how we think. And because, you know, the classic example, and, and again, this is what I've come across even pastorally talking to people about prayer. And, well, I just, you know, I pray, but is God even there? As, as though prayer is somehow invoking God who's out there and, and this idea of waiting for God to turn up. And, and I, yeah, I, I tried to pray, but God didn't really turn up as though I was waiting in a room and God didn't come in the room. Yeah. But actually, no, and, and this gets back to what you were saying before, God is already imminently at work. Prayer is a response to the pervasive Activity of God in all things, mm-hmm. all the time. So prayer essentially begins with an acknowledgement: God, you are at work all the time. There is this great flow, like a great river of being, you know, flowing in all things, all the time. Mm-hmm. And prayer is about an acknowledgement of that, and about aligning ourselves and moving with that great flow of being. To me, that makes all the difference, you know, because it completely obliterates the question, you know, did God turn up or not in my prayer time? No, no, you were the one that turned up. Prayer is essentially mm-hmm. the act of us presenting ourselves. It's us being present, right? Because mm-hmm. in our natural sort of alienated state, we're the ones that are alienated from God. He's not alienated, you know, from us. We have alienated ourselves relationally from God. And so prayer is the activity of presenting ourselves to God and actually 
learning to flow with God relationally. And that, to me, has completely transformed my idea of prayer and what that actually entails and looks like. It means that I start with worship, with that fundamental sense, God, you are present, you are at work in all things. I surrender, help me to surrender. I trust, help me to trust. I realize that I'm completely dependent on the flow of God's Spirit, even for me to pray. But I acknowledge as well that in that special sense, because of what he has done in Jesus Christ, he has reconciled me to himself so that I can now be joined again to God. I can be filled with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God who flows within me is guiding me into that sense of flowing with God's will. And that's where peace is. That's where that sense of peace is and rest and joy, that relational connection with God that is described in the, in the Bible as walking with God, you know, flowing with God, living by the Spirit, that beautiful sense of rest, flowing in harmony with the God who loves us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Thrive Perspectives. Our hope is that these discussions will challenge you to look at life from a new perspective. You'll find all our resources at the Thrive Today website, thrivetoday.tv. If there's a topic that you'd like us to discuss, please email us. Our email is contact at thrivetoday.tv. Until next time, our prayer is that you will thrive. Thrive.